From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called Women Merely Players. In Shakespeare's time, of course, only men appeared on stage with teenage boys playing the women's parts. Today, women play women and sometimes men, and vice versa. In this podcast, we've gathered some of the best-known actresses in the Folgers' hometown, Washington, D.C., to talk about their experiences on stage with Shakespeare. Hi, my name is Naomi Jacobson. My name is Cam McGee. I'm Franchelle Stewart-Dorn. I'm Victoria Reinsel. My name is Charlene V. Smith. My name is Holly Twyford. And the Shakespeare women who I have played. Oh, Lord, the roles that I've played. Uh, it's really funny. I have actually an entire list on my refrigerator at home of all the Shakespeare roles I need to play before I die. And I, one by one, I cross them off as I get through them. I've played Julia in Two Gents. Queen Elizabeth in Richard III. Nerissa in The Merchant of Venice. Jessica in The Merchant of Venice. Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. My acting instructor when I was in college said, you're really going to come into your own when you're 35. And I thought, that is just the most unkind thing to say to someone who's 20. But in some ways, he was right. Paulina in Winter's Tale, Catherine of Aragon in Henry VIII. Anne Page in Merry Wives of Windsor, Marina in Pericles. Calpurnia in Julius Caesar. And then I got to play Widow Capulet in All's Well. You don't hear a lot about her. She's only in, like, the fourth act or something, so. (laughs) The Queen in Cymbeline. The Abbess in Comedy of Errors. And others. And I think that's all. God, wouldn't that be terrible if I were missing one? (laughs) I think the question of which are the juiciest roles in Shakespeare is an interesting one. There are so few women's roles that most of them are juicy. The soul of these women is searing hot with either passion or love or rage or righteousness or a pursuit of justice or, you know, whatever you're there to accomplish. Jessica in The Merchant of Venice is not a very big role, but you can really sink your teeth into it. She has a fascinating relationship with her father. Paulina, who I think is just one of the most exciting parts in Shakespeare, and I got a chance to do it, so I was happy about that. I've always had a great affinity for Beatrice in Much Ado, and I've gotten to play her once. I've played Cleopatra. Cleopatra is one of those roles where you can actually feel the hair stand up on the back of your neck. You and I must part. Oh, but that's not it. Sir, you and I have loved. But there's not it. That you know well. Something it is I would. Oh, my oblivion is a very Antony. And I am all forgotten. She has long thoughts, she has short thoughts, she's smart as a whip. You actually have to think faster when you play her. The great thing about Cleopatra is that her language can actually ignite the audience's imagination. I have immortal longings in me. Now, no more the juice of Egypt's grapes shall moist this lip. Yeah, yeah, good Iris. Quick, methinks I hear Antony call. I see him rouse himself to praise my noble act. I hear him mock the lack of Caesar, which 
the gods give men to excuse their after wrath. It is a wonderful feeling when you know that an audience is listening to you. There's a specific energy and you could feel it on stage as an actor. And just when you think you cannot do any more, you really are called upon just to put it all out on the stage. Just to roll the dice and see what happens. Lady Macbeth is extremely fierce and powerful. And despite this strength, you still have the added challenge of having to go through her mental breakdown and downfall through that play. Yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great. Art not without ambition, but without thee, illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou holily. She starts off thinking she is in complete control of everything that is happening to her, and she finds that she is not in control. And because she doesn't understand consequences, she's caught up in a story that she can't, and a web she can't get out of, except by suicide. I think it's one of the roles in the Shakespeare canon that you can bring different things to as you age. The question of the age of characters is an interesting one, and we are constantly talking about it. Oh, no, they would never call me in for that because I'm too old, or they would never call me in for that because I'm too young. It's very different to have a 25-year-old Beatrice who is unmarried, and people are saying, you know, oh, we think you like Benedict, you should get married, versus a 35-year-old Beatrice or even a 45-year-old Beatrice who is still unmarried um, and has this past with Benedict. And it also affects what that past is depending on Benedict's age as well. I definitely prefer the bad girls. Oh, the bad girls are far more interesting. The good girls are the bad girls. I mean, I love them both. They've all got something to offer. Well, it depends if the good, how well the good girl is written. It's always more fun to play the bad ones. Oh, it's really fun to play the sisters in Lear. You know the goodness I intend upon you. Tell me, but truly, but then speak the truth. Do you not love my sister? Oh, it's really fun to play the witches. I think maybe I'm attracted to rage. I love women who get to just speak it out, no holds barred, to the men in power. Was it you that would be England's king? Was it you that reveled in our parliament and made a preachment of your high descent? Where are your mess of sons to back you now? The wanton Edward and the lusty George. And where's that valiant crookback prodigy? It doesn't matter whether they're good or bad. It matters if their language ignites the audience's imagination. One of the things I think is really wonderful and surprising about Shakespeare is the way he writes his women, because we think of the early modern era in which he was living as a very restrictive time for women. Most of the women are on a mission. They're writing an injustice, or they're pursuing true love, or they're getting back at somebody for something they did to them. So they are willing, more than willing, to defy convention. It does surprise me that he wrote women the way he did. I'm, I'm constantly amazed because there is such a femininity about his female roles, and they are not all the same. And I often ponder, how was it possible for a young boy to get inside the head of Cleopatra? It doesn't surprise me at all that the women in Shakespeare are as strong as they are. People don't change. 
We're all the same as we used to be, aren't we? I think he writes people. I don't think he writes gender. Remember, he was writing for men. It would have been fascinating to see what he would have written if he could have had women performing women, but he didn't. He could let women say things <laughs> that really took men to task, and they would have to hear it differently because a woman was speaking it to them rather than a man. But then that's the only place probably you could discuss a woman having power because, in fact, she didn't really have power. So you put it up on stage and it makes it fine and acceptable and the audience say, well, it was just a play, but she was quite a fun character, blah, 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 you know. And then we find these plays, particularly by Shakespeare, where they are outspoken, where they are strong, where they are ambitious, where they are a great majority of the time smarter than the men around them. I would say that that is true, that most of the women are smarter than the men. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yes, they are. <laughs> and I think that the women in his audience enjoyed seeing that. They trust their gut and their heart. They know what they know, and they trust what they know. I don't think that the women in Shakespeare are smarter than the men. I think that they're as smart as the men. And in our society, we perceive that as smarter than. But in terms of love, in terms of love, I think the women are smarter because they have a bigger concern and their stakes are higher than the men's stakes. Women have to worry about their status. They have to worry about getting pregnant. They have to be worried about, in some ways, they have to figure out if this person really loves them, if he's worth it. They're always smarter than the guys that they're paired up with. I mean, Rosalind is brilliant, and Orlando is not the brightest bulb in the box, but she loves him, and she takes control of the situation, and I can think of countless examples like that. It's, it's definitely true. Portia's ridiculously smart. Lady Macbeth certainly seems to be the brains of the operation in Macbeth. Yes, women are often cleverer than their male counterparts. Some of the women who drive me crazy in Shakespeare, Helena in All's Well That Ends Well. Helena in All's Well That Ends Well pines after a man who I think is not worthy of her at all. Here's this woman who is smart, but boy, is she stupid in love. But that's so human. We can't account for who we fall in love with. Sometimes we look at people and think, that makes no sense. Who else? I know who frustrates me because I'm a character actress. I've played a lot of them. Nerissa and uh, Celia. Nerissa and Celia do everything Rosalind and Portia do. If Portia gets married, Nerissa has to get married. It's just sort of monkey see, monkey do. Well, I'll tell you who drives me crazy, Lady Anne and Richard Three. Out of my sight! Thou dost infect mine eye! Thine eyes, sweet lady, have infected mine! Those eyes of thine from mine have drawn such tears. In the course of a wooing scene, which is one of the most brilliant scenes written in Shakespeare, she completely changes her tune. Put up your sword. Say then my peace is made. That shalt thou know hereafter. But shall I live in hope? Oh, man, I hope live so. Art safe to wear this ring. I find her incredibly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a big problem with Kate in Taming of the Shrew. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy 
head thy sovereign, one that cares for thee. I find Kate fascinating. It's so interesting to me that shrews used to be punished by putting a metal, sort of a, a like a hand, so that they couldn't talk. If they talked, they'd cut themselves. And so the lesson that she should learn is to shut up. And so in the middle of the play, Kate shuts up. And at the end of the play, she talks and talks and talks. It's not that she isn't her own woman. It's not that she gives anything up. She actually gains spiritual insight about how human beings ought to relate to each other. I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war when they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to serve, love, and obey. Petruchio doesn't maybe start out with altruistic intentions, but actually helps her into a situation where she can deal with other human beings in a rational way. And that last speech that everybody pounces on, I think will be received by the audience well, indifferently, or with anger, depending on how Petruchio accepts it. My mind hath been as big as one of yours. My heart is great, my reason happy more to bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lancers are but straws. In the beginning of the play, Kate gets to have that anger and the rage at the society and the conventions that she doesn't adhere to. And then she comes across another person with, who can match her rage and her anger and gets to see how it affects people, how it affects her. So she comes up against a reflection of herself and has a spiritual awakening. People think, oh, she's tamed. I don't think so. I think she's actually grown as a human being. I'm also always amazed that if a woman puts on a hat and a pair of pants, the man she is madly in love with no longer knows who she is. But, you know, that's just the way the plays are written. We'll just enter that world and go along with it. I think women dressing up as men in Shakespearean plays, it certainly gives him more leeway. They can certainly do a lot more. They can be much more active participants in the story if they're not constrained by the niceties of the time and what they were allowed and not allowed to do. And, and then, of course, they can go into the woods. <laughs> There's something potentially freeing about taking on someone else's identity or a made-up identity and not having whatever constraints you would have upon yourself gives people a license to say things they wouldn't normally say otherwise. The reason we see so many heroines in Shakespeare's plays dress up as men is really just about convenience, I think, probably. That's why I think he does it. Because he has boy actors. And for much of the play, Rosalind is dressed as a boy. I think it's a brilliant solution, frankly. I think Shakespeare probably just thought it was funny, too. It's fun. It's interesting. The story is fun. The audience is in on something that the characters in the play are not. So it's um, enjoyable. In God's name, what art thou? A man, as you are. To me, the most successful performances and actors are the ones that don't so much worry about the gender. What shall we do? Relent and save your souls. Relent? Tis cowardly and womanish. Not to relent is savage, beastly, devil. Cross-gendered casting has been undergoing a sort of renaissance in the Shakespeare industry. I think uh, the reason we see so many cross-gender productions is because it started off as a cross 
gendered form. It, it was men playing women. So who's to say women can't play men and like, men play women? It's a dangerous thing. A man cannot steal, but it accuseth him. He cannot swear, but it checks him. He cannot lie with his neighbor's wife, but it detects him. The other thing is that there are more women who have the chops for Shakespeare. You have two generations of women who can really do the material and do the material so well that it's a shame not to find roles for women. The great king of kings hath in the tables of his law commanded that thou shalt do no murder. And you also have the benefit of women like Jean Roberts and Ida Prosky in the 70s who basically stood up as scholars and said, why aren't there more roles for women and challenged women like me to fight for more opportunities for women. Ida Prosky, Bob Prosky's wife, wrote a fabulous book saying, I think it was, you don't need four women to play Shakespeare. And the point was that you could go on tour with, you know, three women or four women, and you'd be able to cover the canon, because that's how many women there are, in the, you know, in the plays. And I think maybe some actresses got a little tired of that. The women realized these are some great roles, and uh, I want to try this. I always get a little offended when I go to see a Shakespeare play and the theaters aren't using cross-gender casting because I think of how many wonderful women deserve to be on that stage. And frankly, I'm going to say this as a woman in this field, but I have seen significantly more talented actresses running around than I have seen talented actors. And uh, so I think it's great when theaters just put a good person in roles and don't necessarily relegate them to something that corresponds with that person's own gender. Really get close so that Jenna is very unsettled by the time she has to get to Alas, for whose sake did I that ill deed for Edward, for my brother, for his sake, because she's got this three-part repetition um, where she's just saying the same thing over again. I, I think probably They sort of famously say that once you can play Shakespeare, you can play anything. And I think there's a lot of truth in that because when you're trained as a Shakespeare actor, so much of that is about text analysis and mining that text. And once you learn how to mine an author's words, you can find magic in lines everywhere. He puts into words every thought you could conceive of when it comes to love or anger or hate or want or need or greed. And being able to say those words is just a gift that I've received throughout my life. The language is so good. There's a reason they call it heightened language, because it is, and it sort of raises you to another place. Every time I do a Shakespeare play, I get a new tongue twister to add to my warm-up. There's something really exciting about that. You have to expand yourself to play Shakespeare. You have to expand into the roles. It challenges every part of an actor all the mechanics of it, the actor's body, the actor's voice. You've got to be able to sustain those three and a half, four hours vocally. Every skill you have as an actor. It uses every ounce of you. It's very satisfying to play Shakespeare. If you have the right part, you are never, never bored. You feel that you've really accomplished something. And I guess, quite honestly, you have. You've been hearing the voices of Naomi Jacobson, Cam McGee, Franchelle Stewart-Dorn, Victoria Rensel, Charlene V. Smith, and Holly Twyford, some of Washington, D.C.'s best-known female Shakespeare performers. The all-female staging of Richard III was produced for Brave Spirit Theatre with Jenna Burke as George, Duke of Clarence. 
First murderer was Rachel Hines. Second murderer was Tina Renee Fulp. Women Merely Players was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. The music in the piece was composed and arranged by Lenny Williams. We had help gathering material for the Shakespeare Unlimited podcast series from Amy Arden. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.